0: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, I do want to say a special thanks to Paul Gage for sharing the story of his father with us. What a powerful story that is, and, um, you know, Paul's a guy that I look to. He's the chairman of our elder board, just an incredible man of faith and really models faith to me well. Uh, We're going to continue along in our series, Stories of Grace, so I'd invite you, if you have your scriptures with you, uh, you can Open up to Luke chapter 23, and we'll be at verse 39. Now, next week, we're going to start a different series called Prayers That Matter. And we're going to be looking at stories in the Bible uh, where heroes or Bible characters pray, and God moved in and through those prayers. So I'm excited about that. But we get one last look at grace today one of my favorite, favorite subjects in all of the Bible the grace of God. Let me ask you a question as you're thinking about grace. Have you ever considered how bad the math of grace is? I I read an article this week by Phil Yancey from Christianity Today. He wrote it back in 1984, and he titled the article, The Atrocious Mathematics of Grace. He says, when you look at the math of the parables that Jesus shares about God's grace, the math is suspect and just think about it. I'll share a couple of them with you. Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers in the field. Now, if you know that parable, you know that a farmer goes out and he hires workers, and all throughout the day, he's hiring workers. He begins at the morning hour, and then that first coffee break hits. They go out, they get more lunch comes, more workers. The second coffee break after lunch, more workers, and then At the last hour of the day, they go and they pick up the stragglers, who are just sitting around doing nothing, and they bring them along. Now, throughout the day, everyone's pretty happy with the situation. They know that they're going to get paid at the end of the day. They're out there working hard. But things change when the workers realize that those slackers who came in at the end of the day are going to get paid the same amount as they are. You know... You've worked hard. You've watched someone slack, and you've seen them get paid for slacking. It doesn't feel very good. It doesn't feel fair, and it's a horrible economic decision. Here's another one. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a parable about a hundred sheep. One sheep runs away, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go get the one. Does that make sense? I mean, what if that shepherd had come back, and uh, wolves had eaten 23 of his ninety-nine? That's bad math. That's bad business. So, why does God work like this? Well, this morning, we're going to pick up a story about a thief who's dying on the cross next to Jesus. And I think we'll get an answer to this question. As you consider this man's character and who he is, that word thief means that he is a professional criminal. This is what this guy has done. And when you dig into the word a little more, you get a sense that he's probably participated in a lot of stuff. Uh, That term could be used for robbery. It could also be used for someone that was hired for murder. And yet, in this story, this thief is the first human recipient of salvation. Now, you do the math. Does that make any sense at all? Well, let's take a look at the story and we'll see how God works with grace. We pick up at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I am so interested in this thief's story. But before we look at his story, I want to look at the first thief and ask the question, what can keep us from getting God's grace? We've been looking at a lot of situations, haven't we, where individuals have received the grace of God Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers. We looked at a man whose name is hard to pronounce, Mephibosheth. Uh, We looked at the story of a king, King David, who was highly successful, and yet he went off the rails with adultery and murder. And then we looked at the story of a marriage between Gomer and Hosea and how unfaithful Gomer was to Hosea, and yet she receives God's grace. Now, I hope the the message that you have been picking up as we've been looking at these stories of grace is this, if these people can receive the grace of God, then surely that grace is available to people like you and me as well. But not everyone receives God's grace, and that's something we see in this story. What prevents a person from receiving God's grace? As I look at the scriptures, it has to do with the heart attitude. Look again at verse 39, but this time ask yourself, what is this thief's heart attitude toward Jesus? One of the criminals who were hanged railed, or it could be translated blasphemed, at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. So clearly, this man's heart attitude is one of defiance. Even though Pontius Pilate had put a sign over his head and labeled him the king of the Jews, this guy did not look at Jesus as the Messiah, the long awaited one that they had been expecting. And, you know, his worldview was such that he didn't have any category for a Messiah hanging on a cross. Uh, if this guy was a zealot, he had expected there to be an end of the roman occupation and for the messiah to come in and set things right so here he is looking at this man hanging on the cross who is pitiable he's bloodied he's bludgeoned and he's just hanging there and he says to himself there's no way that i'm going to accept a messiah like this you see this thief was prevented from grace because he could only see the absurdity of jesus he's not alone he's taking up the cry of the crowd you hear the chorus swelling the rulers verse 35 he saved others let him save himself and the soldiers verse 36 if you're the king of the jews save yourself now it's kind of hard to understand why jesus would do something like this why would he hang on the cross paul picks up this tension in first corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. The math just doesn't add up. It's like hogwash. You ask Siri about it, and Siri says, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. This is not the kind of Messiah that people want. Now, people want a Messiah, but they don't want the kind of Messiah just, that just hangs there and dies. A defiant heart says to Jesus prove yourself. Prove it. Now, it's interesting as you look at what the crowd has been saying, because in in a way, they, they are also acknowledging that Jesus has already proved himself. They say, you saved others. So clearly, they're attesting in the moment to the miracles. They've seen Jesus work. They've seen him operate. They've heard the authority within his teaching. And yet, for whatever reason, something more needs to be done in their mind. I I remember reading an article a while ago about an an atheist was writing from his perspective, and he said that he was willing to believe in a God, but something would have to happen first. He said, basically, for him to believe in God, he would need to see the the skies rent apart and thunderbolts striking down in a dominant picture of God would pop into, into the picture and say to him, Sam, you've been igni- uh, ignoring me and denying me and saying all kinds of bad things about me, and you need to get your act together and start believing in me. He said, then if that happened, then you'd believe in God. Now, think about it. What is this guy asking for? God must give me my own little moment I'm not going to believe in him, which means it's all about who? Me. Now, there's nothing wrong with having questions or even considering evidence. I love that in the book of Acts, the Berean church that asks Paul about Jesus, and then they dig back into the scriptures and see if they can verify what he's saying. We are logical creatures. We were designed in such a way that we should not accept Things, premises like blind faith. Faith is to be connected with logic. It's to be connected with evidence. But the problem with the prove it attitude is that God must do everything on my terms. He must open the skies. He must individually satisfy my demands. And then and only then will I believe. Well, grace can't work with that attitude. When you adopt that attitude, you become like a hermit crab. You enshrine yourself with a shell and even though grace is operating all around you all the time you're impervious to it because you're closed off in the heart see here's what i've come to learn about grace grace is universal in this sense anyone at any time from any background can receive it now that's incredible but grace is exclusive in this sense We must receive God's grace, not on our terms, but on God's terms. So, what's the key then? How do I gain access to that grace? Well, the thief shows us the way, the second thief. Look at verses 40 and 41. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So this thief is showing us something about how to unlock grace, and it's like this. You have to do the math for your part, okay? You have to do the math. Ask yourself the question, do you really want God to be this moral cosmic IRS agent? You want God keeping tabs on everything? Do you want him crunching the numbers, weighing the good deeds and the bad deeds, and and hoping beyond hope that if you just live a good life that maybe you'll wind up on the good side of the ledger. Do you want that? Well, I think a lot of us think that way about God. I think that's our instincts. Our instincts tell us that you must do something good in order to be accepted. This is the premise of all major world religions. Religion says work a little harder, adhere to the system a little better, and you will be right with God. You know, basically, if you pay your dues, the scales will balance, and you will be okay. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. That's right. When you look at most of the major world religious systems, there's no guarantees. There's no full and final assurance. It's a big, fat, probable the thief though he's seeing something different about math and god he's saying that we don't want god to do the math because if god does due diligence if god crunches the numbers that means i get what i deserve and if god runs the numbers i'm always in major moral deficit with him So what does he do? Well, verse 42 shows us. He cries out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I I love what Ray Pritchard says about that verse. He says that this is the most clear and compelling and strong saving faith in all the Bible. I mean, think about this thief's situation. He's on the cross, he's next to Jesus. What is he seeing right now? He's seeing a man who has been beaten, a man who has been nailed to the cross. He probably had ropes tied around him so that he wouldn't fall off of the cross. There are crowds all around him railing against him, shouting cheers of joy when he coughs blood or when someone throws a rock and hits him. I mean, the scene is garrulous, it's brutal, it's hellish. He's seeing Jesus... In his weakest moment, and yet he manifests saving faith. And what's more about this guy is he didn't have any of the opportunities that the disciples did. He didn't walk with Jesus through the Galilean countryside and see the miracles and sit under the greatest teacher of all time. No. The only experience he'd had with Jesus most likely were in these moments on the cross. So what happened? Well, here's what I think happened. Now, here you have this guy. He's a hardened man. <laughs> He's been in the life of crime most of his life. He knows the dark side of the human heart. In fact, he knows the dark side in himself. As he begins with Jesus, he hates Jesus like the rest of the crowd. Matthew 27, 44 tells us that both robbers who were being crucified reviled him. But then something dramatic happened. Now, a great study in the life of Jesus is the study of the seven words, the seven final words of Jesus. It's those seven last statements. We always take someone's last words very seriously because that tends to be an encapsulation of of what their life was about. And many commentators believe that Luke 23, 34 is the first of the last words. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Well, imagine the scene. Here's this hardened thief full of hatred and bitterness. He's probably been fighting against occupied Rome. He probably is just venomous with hatred towards the people around him watching him. And as all of this chaos is happening, as people are laughing and jeering and shouting, the the chaos is disrupted by the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. Now, he had a lot of things that he wanted to say to this thief, but forgiveness was not in the vocabulary. How could Jesus say that? How could he forgive the very people who are crucifying him right now? And I think what happened in that moment was that that planted a seed which blossomed into full faith in this man's heart. And here's what's comforting about his faith. He didn't know all the right words but what he said was good enough because he said it to the right person when you go to the doctor you don't say doctor i need this exact medicine half the time i don't know what's wrong with me when i go to the doctor i just describe some symptoms and then i expect the doctor to prescribe the medicine to me so here you have a guy who was not theologically polished? He's not hanging there on the cross, quoting John three sixteen, and walking through the Romans road. In fact, all of the theologically polished people are standing at the foot of the cross, jeering the Messiah. No, this man, the only thing he knew to do was to cry out to Jesus, and he received grace. And this is because our third point: Jesus is the source of all grace. Verse 43, this is our Savior's response to this man's cry. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now Phil Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, notes this. Grace costs nothing for the recipient but everything for the giver. God's grace is not a grandfatherly display of niceness for it costs an exorbitant price at Calvary. There is only one real law, the law of the universe, said Dorothy Sayers. It may be fulfilled either by way of judgment or by way of grace, but it must be fulfilled one way or the other. And so in crying out to Jesus, this thief is crying out to the source of all grace. And this is the irony of the moment. While he deserves judgment, he's met by grace, by by Jesus. And as Jesus is meeting him with grace, he's enduring the punishment that this man deserves. Now, that's just wonky math. That doesn't compute in our world. I mean, the normal way that the world operates has been captured well in a movie, The Last Emperor. In it, a young child anointed is anointed as the last emperor of China, and he's living a magical life of luxury. He has a Thousands of eunuchs who attend to his every need. His brother asks him, what happens when you do something wrong? And the boy emperor replies, one of my servants bears the punishment for me. And to demonstrate this, the boy emperor just knocks down a jar and the jar breaks. And one of the servants is taken and beaten on his behalf. That's the ancient rule the ancient pattern of this world. But Christianity reverses all of that. You see, in Christianity, when the servants erred, the king was punished. Grace is free only because the giver himself has taken the punishment on our behalf. And now we see the irony in the first thief's request. He says, save yourself and save me while you're at it. But the problem is, is if Jesus saved himself, then there would be no saving for anyone at all. So the second thief understands. He sees it. In fact, he's the first to see it. Peter didn't see it. John didn't see it. The women weeping at the foot of the cross didn't see it. No, this thug, this scoundrel, this professional criminal, this Man, if he were to show up here on a Sunday morning, who would probably scare most of us if we saw him, he's the first one to get it. And he teaches us some very important things about grace. I want you to see two things that he shows us. The first thing is, he shows us that grace says, it's never too late to trust Christ. Christ. You think about this guy's story, he has just a couple of hours to live when he first recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He turns to Jesus, and Jesus responds to him with grace. Now, the problem with this particular passage is some people take this lesson too far. I I encourage you don't take this lesson too far. Here's a couple of things I don't mean as I say this. I would never suggest that anyone wait till the last moment to be saved. That would be a foolish thing. I certainly would not suggest that you should do what you want for as long as you can and then turn to Christ after you've kind of sown your wild oats. The Bible does not treat the heart that way. When you think about the heart, the heart is a very precious thing. The Proverbs tell us to keep the heart, take care of the heart, guard the heart. Hearts tend to love and pursue the things that they love, and so if I give myself to something... Over time, that's what I begin to adore, and I'm not going to change along the way. So if salvation, when I'm first receiving revelation about it, doesn't seem like anything I want, if I continue to reject it over time, I may ultimately reject it. Now, some people have said, well, haven't you heard about the deathbed conversions, people who have trusted Christ at the last hour? Absolutely, I've heard about those, but I will say this, for every one of those I've heard, I can tell you about 10 or 11 where someone kept rejecting God and their heart grew colder and colder and colder until that deathbed moment came and they said, I want nothing to do with Jesus. But, at the same time, It is never too late because what we learn from this man is that even though he's led a life of crime, even though this is the final hours of his life, if he turns to Jesus, Jesus is there to receive him. It's never too late. If you've been ignorant of God your entire life, it's never too late for you. If you have a wake of bad decisions behind you, it's never too late for you. If you look at yourself and you say, hey, I am a bad person, just like this thief said of himself on the cross, his own words, I'm a bad person, it's never too late. You can turn to Jesus at any time. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It matters what Jesus did. That's what grace is all about jesus's death on the cross in your place for you which leads us to the final point about grace to really get grace you have to understand that grace is a gift now let me ask those of you who worry over whether you do enough for god whether god's pleased with you whether you could do something that would cause god to be angry with you and fully and finally reject you what could this thief on the cross in any way have done to please god in his final moments in anything could he do anything to contribute to his salvation in this moment no i mean think about this he's never baptized he never takes communion he never goes to a confessional and confesses his sins He never went to church, he never walked down an aisle and got saved, he never read through the Bible in a year, he couldn't lift up his hands and and do one good work for one person, he never led a single person to Christ, and yet this guy gets to heaven. Now that's a picture of God's grace for us. And I think now we're finally at the place. We've been working through these stories of grace, and I said, I wasn't going to spend all of my time defining terms for you, but I think we're finally there. Through this man's story, we can finally see a definition for what grace is. I'm going to borrow Phil Yancey's definition here. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. Okay, you, you can't do enough spiritual activities or renunciations. You you can't gain enough knowledge. I don't care how many Bible conferences you go to or how many hours a day you read the Bible. I don't care how many crusades you go on, these righteous activities where you're trying to do things in the name of God. Nothing you could do could cause God to love you more. And the reverse side of the coin is, and grace means that there's nothing we can do that could cause God to love us less. I don't care what kind of dark skeleton you have hidden in your closet. Or some addiction that you've been struggling with for the dominant part of your life or a sin or a habit that you just can't seem to break free from. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. And let's just say that's a lot. Now that math is wonky. It's really wonky, but it sure works out good in our favor. Now, some of us might struggle with this idea of grace because we say to ourselves, well, what if someone took advantage of that? What if they see that God's this gracious and they they just decide to do whatever they want to do? Well, just remember what the Bible says every time Paul addresses that issue I could summarize it like this. It might have cost you nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. And if that's the truth, then we must never scorn that gift or trample it upon it or devalue it in any way. So we close this series down. My question to you is and always will be, have you appropriated God's grace? Have you received it? Have you received the eternal gift of grace? And I emphasize the word eternal because Jesus speaks of this grace as an eternal offer here. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that word paradise is a Persian loan word. The Persians had these beautiful hanging gardens and whenever a king wanted to honor one of his subjects, they would wake up in the cool of the morning and they would walk through paradise together. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, the scriptures use that same term to refer to heaven. So grace is an offer from King Jesus, an invitation to you to trust him and to walk with him for eternity in heaven. I've got to ask you, are you sick of the chaos and pandemonium of this world? I am i'm sick of it this can't be that all there is this can't be heaven heaven is the world where jesus says there will be no more pandemics no more racial tensions no more bickering and feuds and ugliness a perfect world a paradise And if you want to be with Jesus in that world, the Bible says you have to put your faith in Him. You have to trust Him. And if you'd like to do that this morning, I'd like to lead you in a prayer to do that. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that You are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank You for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. I trust you as my one and only Savior. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen.